Welcome back to Telegnosis and Tea. I'm your host Tess and I'm not drinking any tea currently because it's getting kind of late and I didn't want the caffeine. If I have been drinking a lot of water, um, I would suggest a sweet tea for this episode since today we're going to be talking about Halloween candy. Picture this. The night is Halloween. Kids flock to the streets dressed up as everything under the moon. Superheroes, mummies, princesses, witches, ghosts, cats, dinosaurs, pioneers if you were me in the third grade. They take to the streets, knocking on neighbors' doors with the saying, trick or treat. When they have their bags filled with different kinds of candy from neighbors all over the neighborhood, and sometimes raisins and a toothbrush if you live next to a dentist, the kids go home after a long night of trick or treating. After, of course, sneaking some candy into their pockets for later, they're told one treat before bed and choose a delicious looking chocolate bar. They take a bite and suddenly, what's this? Metal in a candy bar? They feel their cut lip and realize they're bleeding before their mouth begins foaming. Sadly, their parents realize this candy has been poisoned. Halloween sadism is a term that's been coined by Joel Best, a researcher on Halloween candy tampering to describe people contaminating children's candy including adding poison, razor blades, sewing needles, and so on. Rumors of Halloween candy being tampered with have been circulating since as early as the Industrial Revolution. Candy being given to kids containing razor blades, needles, broken glass, or straight-up poison has haunted parents for over a hundred years. During the Industrial Revolution, candy went from being made by a local candy maker in a small town to being made elsewhere in a large factory by unknown people, unfamiliar machines, and odd ingredients. At this time, doctors began to claim they were treating children every day for poison candy. And whenever a child became ill, shortly after eating candy, it was assumed tainted candy was the cause. These claims were never substantiated, though. The U.S. Bureau of Chemistry finally decided in the 1890s and early 1900s to test the candy being made by factories to find out if the poisoning was true. They, as well as other agencies, tested hundreds of different kinds of candy but found none contained poison. Some did have trace amounts of copper from the process of making the candy that would come off of some of the machines, but they determined that was not enough to negatively impact children, and the kids were likely feeling ill after overindulging in too much candy that contained glucose, a cheaper kind of sweetener. It was known to cause some tummy aches when it was consumed in too large of a quantity. This is also the time when you could cure diseases with such medications as arsenic and mercury and Coca-Cola contained cocaine. So I think if we tested candy from that time period now, there would be uh, some things that we would consider harmful that the investigative bureaus at the time might not have considered to be harmful. But we'll never know. Things calmed down until about 1959, when a man by the name of William Shine decided to play a harmful practical joke. William V. Shine was a 50-year-old respected dentist in Fremont, California, when he had a fun idea. For Halloween, he was going to cover laxative pills in a candy coating and hand those out to trick-or-treaters. Shine handed out 450 of these candies to trick-or-treaters that year, causing 30 children to become ill and one child to suffer irreparable harm. The motivation for why he decided to do this is still unknown, 
but he was charged with outrage of public decency and unlawful dispensing of drugs. The rumors of tainted candy made a sharp resurgence after this. The concern was fueled because of the social movements of the time. Racial integration, women's rights, there was a lot going on and this brought with it the concern of who's trustworthy and who is not. Neighborhoods saw a lot more movement, and with the growth of cities, it became common to no longer know who all your neighbors are. What is classified as a rumor panic picked up speed. What's next? Razor blades and candy apples? Heroin and chocolate bars? Shine was a known dentist in the community, and he tainted candy seemingly just for fun. What could a stranger be capable of? On Halloween night in 1964, Elise Drucker, her sister Irene, and one of their friends set out trick-or-treating. Knowing this would likely be the last year they could go out as they were starting to get a little old for trick-or-treating. It was just because of this that when the kids arrived at the home of Helen Field, they weren't given so much of a treat or a trick as a crime. That joke was so bad and I'm really tired and I'm sorry. Feel asked the girls, aren't you a little old for trick-or-treating? Before she put what the girls thought was candy into each of their bags. When Elise and Irene got home, their mothers emptied their candy out to go through it. And good thing they did, because the mother discovered that the girls had been given not just candy, but bottle cap shaped ant traps that were labeled poison. As it turns out, 47-year-old Helen Feel was annoyed with kids trick-or-treating when she deemed them too old to be. So, she handed out a range of non-treats to the older kids, including ant poison, dog biscuits, steel wool pads, among other things. No children were harmed, and she said it was merely a joke to teach kids that are too old to trick-or-treat that they shouldn't be, but the police were not amused. Helen pled guilty to endangering children and served a suspended sentence. The heroin and candy came into real life in 1970 when five-year-old Kevin Tostin passed away after allegedly eating Halloween candy that had been laced with heroin. Panic ensued when police found heroin dust in Kevin's candy bag. It was later discovered, though, that little Kevin had gotten into his uncle's heroin stash, mistaking it for candy, and the family had sprinkled heroin into his Halloween bag to try and cover it up. What really pushed society over the edge was the surgence of a man named the Candyman. This is the case that started the real panic for parents who were worried about their kids going trick-or-treating on Halloween. Ronald Clark O'Brien lived a seemingly normal life. He lived with his wife and two children in Deer Park, Texas. He was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church and an optician at Texas State Optical in Sharpstown, Houston. He sang in a choir and was in charge of a local bus program, but all of that changed on Halloween night, 1974. Ronald was taking his two children trick-or-treating, Elizabeth, who was five, and Timothy, who was eight, along with their neighbor and his two children. They decided to trick-or-treat in a neighborhood in Pasadena, Texas. The night was going well and the children were having fun. They eventually stopped by one house where the occupants didn't come outside when they rang the doorbell. The kids were impatient so they ran ahead with the neighbor while Ronald stayed behind. He caught up not too long later with five pixie sticks giving each of the kids a pixie sticks, which he said the occupants of the household had given him. For anyone that doesn't know, a pixie stick is basically a plastic tube that's filled with flavored sugar and you cut off the top and you eat it and it's just as nasty as it sounds. It's just pure sugar <laughs> flavored like grape-ish or strawberry-ish. It's always like the last of the candy in the bag. At least it was in my household. Anyway, since there was five, Ronald gave a 10-year-old boy from church he ran into later that evening the last pixie sticks. The evening came to an end more shortly than usual when it began to rain, and Timothy O'Brien was getting ready for bed when he asked his dad if he could have some candy before he went to bed. Ronald agreed and Timothy chose the pixie sticks. 
When he opened it, he found the sugar had clumped together, which is actually pretty normal. I've had it before, and the sugar totally clumps together all the time if there's any kind of moisture. Ronald helped break the sugar apart, and Timothy had some of the candy. He complained the candy tasted bitter, so Ronald went to get his son a cup of Kool-Aid to wash out the taste. Before he could get to the kitchen, Timothy complained his stomach was hurting and ran to the washroom, where he began vomiting and convulsing. Ronald called an ambulance, but unfortunately, Timothy died en route to the hospital. Parents in Deer Park and the surrounding area broke out in a panic. Parents started giving their kids Halloween candy to the police, fearing it could be poisoned, and numerous households were forced to throw away their candy for fear it was laced with poison. An autopsy on Timothy showed that his pixie sticks had been laced with a fatal dose of potassium cyanide. Police questioned Ronald, who claimed he had received the five pixie sticks from a household. The police were only able to recover four, though none of the other children had consumed the tainted pixie sticks. The parents of the 10-year-old boy, who had been given the pixie sticks from Ronald, became hysterical when they were unable to locate the candy after the police called to inform them that they needed to bring the candy into the police station immediately as it was laced with the potassium cyanide. The parents rushed around to find the candy and eventually found their sleeping son clutching the pixie sticks, unable to get it open due to all the staples that had been put in the top. The boy had luckily fallen asleep before he was able to open it. When tested, the pixie sticks were found to contain 51 milligrams of cyanide powder, and that the pixie sticks were resealed by being stapled shut, which to me would seem unusual if someone gave me a pixie sticks and the top was just folded over stapled shut, but it's possible the parents at that time weren't thinking to go through their kids' candy like people do nowadays. The pathologist that tested the candy found that the candy that Timothy had consumed had enough cyanide to kill two adults, while the others had enough to kill about three to four adults. Police took Ronald into custody, who claimed he couldn't remember which house the pixie sticks came from. Police were suspicious of this, given they had only managed to go trick-or-treating on two streets before it had started raining. Nevertheless, police looked into the streets and found none of the houses had been handing out pixie sticks. They took Ronald with them to walk the streets to try and jog his memory on which household it was that had given him the tainted candy. After walking the streets with the police three times, Ronald pointed to the house that he had waited at for candy when the others ran ahead. He claimed he didn't take in the features of the occupant of the house, only that the light was off and the occupant had cracked the door open enough to reach a hairy arm out and hand him the five pixie sticks. The occupant of the house was Courtney Melvin, who was an air traffic controller at William P. Hobby Airport, and on Halloween night, he did not get home until around 11 p.m. This was confirmed by nearly 200 people that had seen Melvin working the whole evening. Police soon learned that Ronald was not all he seemed to be. He was $100,000 in debt, which is equivalent to about $520,000 in 2019, and for 10 years leading up to the crime, had gone through 21 new jobs. He had unusually taken out life insurance policies on both of his children for $10,000 each in January of that year, 1974, despite objections by his life insurance company. He took out another $20,000 on both children one month before Halloween. If that doesn't seem suspicious enough, just a few days before Halloween, he took out another $20,000 policy on both his children, making an even $100,000 if both children were to die. And, funnily enough, the morning after Timothy passed away, Ronald called to ask about claiming the life insurance. It was this, combined with the police learning that Ronald had visited a chemical supply store in Houston, and inquired about buying cyanide, that the police suspected Ronald had murdered his son, attempted to murder his daughter, and both for their insurance policies. He had given out the other pixie sticks, they assumed, in an attempt to cover up his crime. 
Ronald was questioned by police, but maintained his innocence during questioning. Nevertheless, Ronald was arrested and charged with one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder on November 5th, 1974, just five days after Timothy's death. Ronald pled not guilty, and trial began on May 5th, 1975. In the press, Ronald became referred to as the Candyman. He was eventually convicted on all five counts and sentenced to death, which was carried out on March 31st, 1984. There is a ton of other details, like how he had no friends in prison because no one would be friends with a child killer, and how he planned to use the policy money from Timothy to go on a luxury vacation, but I'm going to keep it short since the focus of this episode is on tainted candy on Halloween. But to summarize, this dude was a POS. (laughs) The world of Halloween candy after the Candyman took on a totally different tone. Every year, the media takes on some story warning about the horrors of tampered Halloween candy. Dear Abby wrote in 1983, quote, Somebody's child will become violently ill or die after eating poisoned candy or an apple containing a razor blade. Advice columnist Ann Landers wrote in 1995 in an article titled Twisted Minds Make Halloween a Dangerous Time, Quote, in recent years, there have been reports of people with twisted minds putting razor blades and poison in taffy apples and Halloween candy. It is no longer safe to let your child eat treats that come from strangers, unquote. University of Delaware sociology and criminal justice professor Joel Best conducted research into Halloween candy tampering since the 1950s. Joel Best is the one I mentioned earlier who coined the term Halloween sadism. He reports, quote, I couldn't find a single report of a child killed or seriously injured from a contaminated treat received during trick-or-treating. This is a contemporary legend, and that's all it is. He did find, since 1958, in Canada and the USA, there's been 200 confirmed cases of candy tampering, but almost all turned out to be hoaxes. Between 2008 and 2015, a study in Canada found that there were only four reports of Halloween candy tampering, all of which were resolved and found to not have been strangers messing with candy, and none of the incidents resulted in injury. Overall, kids are more likely to be hit by cars on Halloween than ever have candy that's been tampered with by a stranger. On Halloween night, kids are more than twice as likely to get hit by a vehicle. In recent years, the concern has grown over marijuana edibles being given to kids over strangers tampering with candy, but this has been found not to happen. It is much more likely that a child would find a hidden stash and eat it thinking it was just candy, but that's a different issue entirely. Overall, no. There has been no evidence of a stranger poisoning children's Halloween candy. The closest thing in this case was the laxatives. But this is almost scarier since the person that tampers with your Halloween candy might be in your house. Right now. 25 days to Halloween! (laughs) 